This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast with Robert Vore and Steve Austin. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm so excited today to be joined by Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Dr. Rutherford has been a psychologist in private practice for over 20 years, having her writing featured on sites like the Huffington Post, the Mighty, the Good Man Project, and a number of others. She's also the author of a book, Marriage is Not for Chickens, as well as the host of her very own podcast, Self Work, with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Dr. Rutherford, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, and please feel free to call me Margaret. That's okay. just great. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I might not answer if you called me Doctor Brother. <laughs> Fair enough. Before we get into our topic for today, I was when I was looking at your website to kind of piece together the bio there. I noticed you have sure. a a more interesting story than many folks on how you got into psychology. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure, I'd be delighted to. I was a professional vocalist in my 20s. I sang jingles during the day in the Dallas studios and then jazz at night. I tried rock and roll. I was a terrible rock and roll singer. Um, but I, the, the profession of, of being a professional vocalist wasn't really, it didn't really suit me. So I started looking around for something else to do and had a, a bass player come sub on the job and he told me about something called music therapy that he was studying at SMU. I, the next year, uh, went to SMU. I put down all the savings I had in the world and went to SMU and started on my journey. Um, after that, I did an internship at a psychiatric hospital and thought, oh, no, 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 this is what I want to do. So I'd already been in therapy uh, myself for different issues and and enjoyed it and believed in it. And so I got my PhD from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School. So it go, I went from a nightclub singer to clinical psychologist in about eight yeah. years. That's incredible. Yeah. So what is it that you do now most of the time? I've been in private practice since 1993. When we first moved here to Arkansas, I did several different things. I worked in the community psychological center, um, the the regional center. I worked in a school. I ran a geriatric group. I kind of did anything I could to, to get known around the area. And then I've been in solo private practice since about 95, that that's all I've been doing. Um, and I love it. I have not burned out. Um, I saw my first patient in 1988 in graduate school, and I hope I did no harm. And I, um, I've just loved the profession. It is exciting to see people discover things about themselves, to heal from trauma that they've had in the past, to uh, watch them try to create a better, more productive life for themselves. And it's an honor to try to help people. Yeah. So I guess the way that we came to you being on the show today is I happened to be scrolling through my Facebook feed a couple of weeks back and I saw uh, a live video from The Mighty on seasonal affective disorder, which is something that I'd been thinking, hey, we should we should talk about on the show anyway, sure. because I know that people are interested in it. It's, you know, it's that kind of time of year. 
as well as me being interested in it in a, in a, from a counseling standpoint. So can you give us a brief overview? I mean, I know that we'll, we'll touch on a bunch of different aspects of it, but what, what is seasonal affective disorder for people who've never heard of it? Well, it is a kind of depression or a subtype of depression that occurs more in a cyclical or cycle, um, a cyclical form. And it's generally speaking, uh, probably about 85 to 90 percent of the people who will report seasonal affective disorder say they begin getting depressed when the days get shorter and weather gets colder. Uh, generally speaking, that's around October-ish. And then they start feeling better. Uh, come March. So there is a true sense of being down, of having less energy, of a sense of dread about that particular season of the year. Interestingly enough, Robert, um, some people do have it the other way around, that when it starts getting warm, they have the doldrums or hmm. they, uh, they struggle with wanting to get out of bed or enjoying their lives. Right. Um, but it is, it, it's been disputed, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that. But it, yeah. my, in my clinical practice, certainly I've had several people who have, uh, who have had and experienced this kind of issue. So you brought up a good point there that there's some controversy about this, whether it's really a real thing or not, even in the academic world. So I guess my question is, what separates this from? I mean, you know, when it when it starts getting darker earlier, we think, oh, I'm sleepier or, you know, it's harder to stay out and do things. So I'm kind of in a lazier mood. I mean, what separates this as a diagnosable thing, I guess, disorder than just, well, we kind of get the blues? You mean what makes it a true distinguishable clinical disorder? Yeah. I mean, if, if we're talking about it as like a, a real treatable disorder, I mean, because some people are probably listening thinking, well, look, you just get more tired during the winter. That's just the way that humans work. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's a good point. I, of course, in here in our culture, we also have the holidays are during the cold uh, Thanksgiving and then Hanukkah, Christmas, um, Kwanzaa. And so you you begin to wonder a little bit, is it is it a reaction to the fact that you're there are there are things that are expectations about the season that people may dread. Uh, they may not have good family relationships. They may not have a lot of friends. Um, and so it's a little harder to face those days. I do think that seasonal affective disorder is, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call it a diagnosis. I would call it more of a, of a syndrome or a, or a, um, it, it's an experience that people have. It's, it, you, we have to be careful with diagnostic criteria when we talk about cyclical disorder because there are things like bipolar disorder and cyclothymia that actually have true cycles. Right. Where a seasonal affective disorder is more, there's just a season of the year where you're not functioning at your best. Um, and in fact, you can even get clinically depressed. Um, so, uh, the fact that there are some theories that it's really about light and the exposure to a certain kind of UV light, UV ray in the, in the sunshine, um, there are, there are certainly light lamps that help people that seem to help people. Now, you know, your point is well taken. How much of that is a placebo effect, um, uh, I think in that Facebook Live where you heard me first, I did quote a, a meta-analysis, which is just 
researchers who take the the um, who take the results of lots of different studies across the board and try to find, you know, is there common ground? Are these studies finding the same thing or they're finding different things? And what they found was that there really wasn't uh, much of a relationship between the actual quantity of these UV rays um, in different countries. They went to, you know, they went to countries that are right on the uh, equator and then they went to countries that that are way north, and so, you know, the way north would actually you know, obviously have less of these UV rays. That would, if, if it was all about light, uh, Sweden would be the most depressed country in the whole world, or Finland right. or something, and it's not. Right. So uh, the rates of depression don't seem, as far as self-report in different countries, don't seem to suggest that this amount of light is really very important. But... As I say, people swear by these lights that you can buy on Amazon or wherever else, and you simply allow that light to shine on you when you're sitting at your desk or reading a book or something, and people say that it can really be helpful. So that it, I'm, not, I'm not sure that answered your question, but hopefully it did. No, that's, I was just asking about some of the controversy. So even in the academic world, there's some controversy about seasonal affective disorder, right? Yes, yes. Some people sort of... Um, deny that it even exists and that it's in people's imagination and then uh, it's it's it has to do with other things um, as I said before it may have to do with kind of being triggered by the season or uh, just being someone who doesn't feel as good physically in cold weather uh, certainly as you get older cold weather is a little more difficult to take um, but, you know, I've had patients tell me that even when they were children um, and it started getting cold, they just felt um, le- less like doing social things. And, and, you know, kids, it doesn't seem to really matter. It's just they've got energy galore. So um, I, I really I don't have necessarily an opinion of my own about whether it's real or not. I My take on treating people has always been, you know, if it's real for them, it's real. Right. So, uh, how whatever we call it, um, it's important to try to help someone where they are, accept where they are, and then work with it. Yeah. So, what are some typical symptoms or, or I guess, manifestations of seasonal affective disorder for people? Well, uh, as as I said before, it's more you know a depressed mood, not enjoying things, a sense of dread. Um, a sense of um, apprehension, uh, probably a fear of of um, not getting better. I mean, anybody who has a, cycl- a cyclical kind of disorder will feel, you know, if they're feeling somewhat normal and then all of a sudden they're not or two or three months of feeling bad, that can be very demoralizing. So I think think there's a sense of demoralization, a sense of not being able to do anything about it. It's just sort of this thing that's going to come and take you over, and you hate it. And 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 what can you know what what can you do about it now? Yeah. One huge thing you can do about it is exercise. Um, that's true for all kinds of depression, really, and it's it's free or it can be free, <laughs> and it um, can be extremely helpful and I uh, especially with people with seasonal affective disorder I had a guy uh, last week that 
swears he has seasonal affective disorder and says every October, November, he begins to feel blue, just not himself. And he began an exercise program, a very rigorous exercise program back in October, and he is doing better with it this year. He says it's just, um, it's not as overwhelming to him. Yeah. So what are some other, I know you talked a bit there about the lights in your the Facebook Live video. You talked about light therapy. I know some people, you know, advocate for taking extra vitamin D or things like that. Are there, yes. there other mm-hmm. other things? Well, um, I, I think with any kind of depression, um, you can, if you share it with others, you know, if you tend to isolate, that's not good. So uh, getting connected with other people, um, I'm sure, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm sure there's some Facebook group that's all about seasonal affective disorder. So, you know, people may have ideas about what to do. I don't, um, Although we did the the mighty Facebook Live on it, and I was thrilled that so many people did talk about what they experienced, um, I, I do think that it it's it's an important thing to think about. But I also think that what something you can do about it is wonder: okay, how much of this has to do with my friends, my family, the expectations I put on myself during the holidays? Um, the loneliness I may feel, the sense of detachment I may feel, um, really looking a little deeper into it to see if it's more than a reaction to um, shorter days and less sunlight. But could it be a reaction also to just needing, you know, do you have memories that are unpleasant? Do you have trauma that happened during the holidays? Is there, you know, are there other things that could be uh, connected to it in some way? Right. I think one of the most interesting things that you pointed out in that video, which I'll put a link so that folks know what we're referencing, but you right. mentioned that uh, that people who are f- who currently live further away from where they grew up tend to experience more severe symptoms or or more common symptoms. That's right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, there was one. There was one study that showed that, and I thought that was fascinating. It's almost as if you accommodate to wherever you live when you're a child growing up if you grow up in new york city you know the cold isn't going to bother you probably uh maybe as much but if you uh if you if you live in a whole another state or a whole another country that has a completely different seasonal uh component then it can they have found that there's tends to be more seasonal affective disorder yeah you know there are plenty of people here in Arkansas, for example, who say I could never live out in California. There are no seasons, and so one wonders. You know, my son is out there now, and I often ask him, "How are you doing with you know just constant seventy-two degree sunshine?" Of course, right now they're having awful fires there, but um, you know he seems to be okay. But I'm sure there's some people that would really long for uh, the seasons as they as they uh, experience them as a child. Yeah. I think you also mentioned in there that uh, women tend to experience more symptoms than men or experience seasonal affective disorder more than men. Are are there any other tidbits like that that you found particularly interesting when you were doing some research? Well, I I think that they will report more. Of course, that's also, you have to realize that women report more seasonal affective disorder. In the, I mean, they report more depression anyway. Right, right. So they are, we women just tend to talk about that um, more than, more than men do. Um, I think probably uh, there was one study that showed that 
um, that again, it's, it, they, they were wondering if it was correlated with age and it did not seem to be, I don't think I talked about that on the, on the Facebook live video, but, um, they did not find a correlation. So there, I found more research actually, uh, not debunking it again, because so many people actually experience it or talk about it. But I think that it, it's to be questioned. Sure. So what can we do if we're, you know, you, you mentioned some about maybe trying to find some community and, and talking about things a little more mm-hmm. intentionally. But so if, if we have ministry leaders listening or church leaders or anybody who works with people, is there anything that they should either be on the lookout for trying to kind of see if people are struggling or that they can do to kind of head this off or try to help provide ways that people can interact more or, or things like that? Sure, Robert. Well, I think probably the most important thing is I, I want to stress that seasonal affective disorder can turn into clinical depression. Hmm. So someone may be in your office and say, you know, I just hate, hate it the winter or I hate it when it gets cold or I just can't wait for the holiday season to be over. And someone will say, oh, well, you know, do you always get down in the winter? And they go, well, yeah. And, and then you... Then you say, well, you know, just luckily it'll turn springtime again. And you can kind of discount what they're experiencing because you, you attributed it all to seasonal affective disorder. But it you have to be careful. That may be what they can allow themselves to talk about. Um, people really still in our culture are struggling with admitting depression and anxiety. And so someone may be, especially a man, would be far more able to tell you, oh, yeah, man, I, my bones ache in the winter and I just hate it. And what he really may be trying to suggest to you and is that he struggles with depression. Sure. And um, so I think that it's important to say things like, well, gosh, do you ever, does it ever really keep you in bed all day? Or do you... You know, how do you handle it so you can hear whether they have coping skills for it or not? Um, and if they don't, you can say, you know, well, you need to watch and make sure that that doesn't turn into darker thoughts or, you know, times when you're by yourself. You need to try to make sure you connect with other people or, um, you know, I just would be careful. I was, I was, when I knew we were going to do this talk today, I thought, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever come into my practice saying I have seasonal affective disorder and I need help. Generally speaking, I hear about it concurrently with other things. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean that it can't morph into something worse, mm-hmm. especially if someone's already down or has less energy or struggling to get out of bed or uh, doesn't, whatever they call it, doesn't handle the cold well. And then they have a loss or a trauma of some kind, and they're already functioning at a lower level or a less productive level, then that can really send them you know, for a loop. So you want to, as, as you listen to people, you want to try to realize that it's easier to talk about being down in the winter than it is. Yeah. Sometimes I have thoughts of not wanting to be here anymore. That's, that's far less likely to come out of someone's mouth than, yeah, I hate the winter. Right. So you talk a lot about 
different types of depression. And one of the one of your main areas of interest, I gather from our emails, is perfectly hidden depression. Yes. The reason why I thought it would be interesting to talk about perfectly hidden depression along with seasonal affective disorder is the fact that um, it, it, it generally is a it's it's more of a the way I conceive of it is it's a syndrome meaning when what a syndrome is it's not a diagnosis it's a syndrome meaning that there are certain kinds of behaviors that you'll often find together like red hair and freckles or salt and pepper I mean <laughs> you'll find these characteristics together in a person and I sort of think seasonal affective disorder is somewhat like that that it's more of a it's not as that you know now the the academic world may not agree with me, mind you, but I, I think of it more as a syndrome, which is just sort of a set of attitudes or beliefs or experiences that fall together that then can lead to depression. But perfectly hidden depression is a term I came up with back in April of 2014, and it's kind of an interesting story. I'd been blogging by that time for about a year and a half every every week. And I'll plug it at drmargaretrutherford.com. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I have a whole, uh, at the end, I'll, have, I'll read off all the ways to connect with you. Um, and I just sat down to write my weekly post. I mean, I really wasn't thinking about anything earth-shattering. But I did think about three or four people that I had seen in the last, oh, I don't know, six months, year. that kind of shared some of the same qualities. Mostly that being that when they would talk about something bad happening to them in the past, they would smile at me. And Mm -hmm. they didn't show much sadness, anger, fear. They, They would come in and sit down on my sofa and said, you know, I feel really silly being here. I don't have any real problems. I have so many blessings in my life. And then they would go on and tell me about all these blessings they had. But, uh... What I noticed was that there was a not just a hesitancy about talking about painful emotions, but almost at times an inability to talk about them, Hmm. to even find words for it. So I wrote this post called The Perfectly Hidden Depressed Person, Are You One? And I published it. And at that point, my posts were getting maybe 30 likes, 30 shares, maybe on a good day, 50. Um, This post in a day had 1,500. Wow. And I was, I thought, I didn't know what was happening. And someone someone said, oh, you're going viral. And I said, what what the heck is that? (laughs) That sounds unhealthy. Yeah. (laughs) So I... I began researching depression and thought, okay, you know, I'm sure somebody's written about depression that looks more, that doesn't look like depression. Right. And the only thing I could find was a book by Terrence Reel written in 1998 called I Don't Want to Talk About It. And it was about male depression that males don't want to show anyone. It was an excellent book, actually. And I thought, well, hmm, that's interesting. And so the more I began, so at the end of that post, what I did was I asked people, and then I wrote a couple of other posts, I asked people to start getting back to me, um, to email me confidentially and talk to me about whether they experienced this. And when the post was put on the Huffington Post, um, 
you know, I got over 200 emails in two days. Wow. So um, I thought, I think I'm onto something. <laughs> and now in the last three and a half years, I have, uh, I have, uh, actually, I have a book proposal out on it right now that's on the desks of a couple of publishers. Um, I've written a questionnaire to for people to take to see if they have it uh, or they experience it. Again, having it sounds like a diagnosis, and it's really not. Um, but it has uh, – there are ten traits that fall together again. That's why it's called a syndrome. Um, perfectionism with a constant critical voice heightened or excessive sense of responsibility. These are the people that always have their hands up in the air saying, okay, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll volunteer for that. Um, difficulty with accepting and express, expressing painful emotion. And it literally, I mean, sometimes they, they stumble when they talk. They, uh, can't, um, they can't find the words to express pain. Um, I should say something about the first one, too. When I say perfectionism with a constant critical voice, what I mean is it's not a pathological thing to be perfectionistic necessarily. But when you're perfectionistic and nothing you do meets your expectations well enough, it's there, you can always find fault with it. Even when someone, you know, everyone else says, wow, this is incredible. You go, yeah, but. So that's what I mean. Right. Okay, number four is uh, worry and the need for control over your environment. Um, lots and lots and lots of control. Uh, and you worry if you don't have it. Uh, you worry that you need to find a way to get it. You need to, if you don't worry, things will get out of control, that kind of thing. The fifth is intense focus on tasks, using accomplishment as a way to feel valuable. These are people who... Don't do well on vacation. <laughs> uh, they find it difficult to relax. Um, they find it difficult to say good things about themselves as a person that doesn't that doesn't include what they have accomplished or what they do. And so, I had a woman yesterday. We were talking about this, and she said, "You know, I what she said." forgotten the term she used but it's basically she said i'm not a beer i'm a doer you know i'm mm. a, i'm not i don't know how to be i only know how to do um the sixth is active concern about the well-being of others while not allowing anyone into their inner world these are people who are very sincerely giving very sincerely interested in other people they give all the time they volunteer they're the guy who's heading up the Christmas drive at work. They're the, they're, she's the woman who is the head of the PTA and started a, you know, some sort of group for disabled children. I mean, these people care, but they don't let anybody into their world. They don't want anyone to know how they really function. So this is a person who's a friend to everybody, but, you know, when you really stop and think about it, nobody knows her very well. The seventh is trouble with acknowledging hurt or abuse from the past or the present and discounts it. Um, one of my most dramatic examples was, again, one of these people I had written about back in April of 2014, and 
she was sitting there one day and she said, you know, in the first session when you asked me about sexual abuse, and I said, yes. She said, well, you know, I don't really think this is important, but I was raped the week before I was in college and I never mm. told anybody, you know, and so, and she had this, again, this smile on her face and proceeded after I asked to tell me more about the details, which I won't go into at the moment, but, mm. uh, it had had a dramatic effect on her, but she had used compartmentalization, which is the ability to just put something in a, an emotional box and stick it in the back of your closet. She had used that far too well. Um, there are accompanying mental health issues involving control or escape from anxiety, things like obsessive compulsive disorder, things like eating disorders, things like substance abuse disorders. Uh, you often will find these with perfectly hidden depression. And there are two more. A strong belief in counting your blessings as the foundation of well-being. Um, actually, since this is a podcast geared toward the ministry, um, this is a huge one for many people who are very spiritual and religious and who struggle with PhD, perfectly in depression. I was going to say, I was looking at the, the first post that you were referencing where you first wrote about it, and one of the bold things that really stuck out to me, it says, you can have blessings in your life and feel their weight. Just because you're admitting that doesn't mean you're not grateful for those. I think that's, exactly. that's so true for, for folks exactly. listening. Right. And it's wonderful to count your blessings. I want people to walk around in the in the side of the glass that's half full. You know, those are going to be happy, productive people. But I, I have worked with so many people who think that it's weak or there's something wrong with connecting with pain, connecting with things that uh, aren't so hot. I mean, uh, I have uh, a wonderful practice. I see lots of patients. There are people who are in my business that uh, don't have many patients and they worry about money. You know, that I, one of my blessings is having a nice full practice. One of the on the other side of that, I work really hard and I get really <laughs> tired. So, you know, can I ever talk about being tired because I'm supposed to be glad I have patients not calling? Yeah, I can. And <laughs> um, when I got pregnant, I had IVF and I had to work three and a half years and I was so glad I was a pregnant. Talk about, I was pregnant. Talk about a huge blessing. And one time I went to my OBGYN and he said, uh, I was talking about my feet hurting. And he said, well, you can't talk about that. You tried so hard to get pregnant. I said, oh, yes, I can. <laughs> I can talk about my feet hurting. <laughs> right. So, yes, it's important to count your blessings. And But in my book, it's not you're not being psychologically healthy when you then use them as a way to say, so I cannot, I should not concentrate at all or focus at all on the things that hurt. Right. And then the very last thing. Intimate relationships may be difficult, but are accompanied by professional success. And what I mean by that is, again, these people are typically very, very successful people professionally. They do well with structure. They're perfectionists. We all want a perfectionist working for us. We want somebody who's attended to, to detail and who uh, is giving to other people and who is there and, you know, compulsively works. <laughs> but, um, again, often people with PhD are drawn to either other people who do the same thing they do, so their relationship can be very superficial, or they're drawn to someone who really is an underfunctioner, um, who allows them to overfunction quite readily. 
And so that discrepancy, um, either the superficiality in the relationship that they avoid conflict like the plague, or that they're attracted to an underfunctioner who will actually manipulate them uh, because they are overfunctioning. So mm. typically their intimate relationships aren't too caught. And, you know, they are not talking to their partners, generally speaking, about who they really are anyway. Uh, the, I've had uh, about 50 interviews, personal interviews with people who have contacted me and felt like they had this syndrome. And over half of them had tried to commit suicide or had a gun in their hand or something like that, and their spouse never knew. Hmm. So, um, and actually, interestingly, Robert, many of them had gone to therapy. This is something for your the, the ministers to know who are listening. Yeah. Many people had gone to therapy, and they were diagnosed with anxiety or exhaustion or overwork, right. or you just you just need to relax, rather than people asking the questions that they should. I had a guy one time, I can go on and on and on about this. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk for days about this. Um, I loved what this one man had to say. He said, you know, you take one of those depression inventories and they ask you the question, Have you? do you ever feel helpless or hopeless? And he said, of course I'd say no to that. I'm not going to let anybody know I feel hopeless. Right. But if the question were, if you felt hopeless, would you tell anybody? And the answer would still be no. But right. that feel what's wrong. <laughs> that would reveal perfectly hidden depression. So since you mentioned it there, what's interesting to me, I'm looking through the, the questionnaire that you've made for, you know, how to tell if maybe you have this. And, uh, you know, do you struggle with confiding in others about real-life difficulties and problems? Do you, do you obsess about things looking perfect? Do you uh, avoid talking to people about feelings? Do you have trouble admitting when you're overwhelmed? Do you push yourself to get the job done regardless of the cost to you? Do you respond to the needs of your friends even when it shortchanges your own? On and on and on. And mostly what I'm thinking, being in kind of the, the overlap that we are, this sounds like 90% of people I've ever met that work in ministry. Really? Of That's like it. just pushing and thinking, hey, I mean, as we mentioned, you know, even when things hurt, I have to put on a good front because I have to be thankful or, you know, I have to be always helping other people regardless of the cost to me. Sure. So, I'm, I'm wondering if, if you have any tips on, you know, if if we know somebody who, I guess, how, how can you know if someone is just a really hard worker, like you said, you know, people will say, well, I just, I thought that I was, you know, overworked and I just needed a break or something like that versus something like this where it could be something a little more serious. Well, my first thought is this, that the fact that they're talking to you about being a little down <laughs> yeah. um, is, would perhaps suggest that they don't necessarily fit this criteria um, because they're admitting to you that they are struggling a bit. Uh, generally speaking, again, now, of course, there's gonna, people are going to be on the spectrum about this, just like everything else. But generally speaking, uh, these are people who don't typically do that. Um, you know, I've had people reach out to me and say, this is my wife or this is my husband. Um, I think you probably have to be up pretty close and personal to someone to know whether 
they struggle with perfectly hidden depression um, because because they're expert hiders. You know, yeah. one of the areas that I've done a lot of reading in, or, or actually I'm still researching, is in perfectionism. There's a great body of research, a, a good deal of research on perfectionism. And, of course, Brene Brown's books have been wonderful. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if only um, Steve was here because my co-host, he loves Brene Brown. I mean, I do as well. Yeah. But- yeah, she she's hit the nail on the head with shame and vulnerability and and imperfection. Uh, but one of the things that uh, there's a guy named Gordon Flett up in Canada who talked about you know the perfectionists are are incredibly good at keeping this persona uh, of of everything being okay um, and doing it all the time and. He, I, I can't remember the quote exactly. It's something like, only if you have dealt with perfectionism yourself or someone you love has, can you have any idea of the potential for damage that perfectionism can do. Hmm. Um, and there are now studies coming out that, uh, for example, there were some studies about suicide in Alaska, and uh, their suicide rate's pretty high. And... Uh, they looked at teenagers and the parents, I think about 70% of the parents of those teenagers who killed themselves said that they had high, extremely high expectations of themselves. Um, there's a tragic case, um, and I can't say the name, uh, but it's up in the Northeast because it's in litigation. But this, uh, I've talked with the mother. She actually quoted some of my work. And her son was an extremely successful high school kid, uh, well-liked, into sports, really smart, going to go to a great college, was a senior, and yet would be suicidal um, at night. Never told his parents. He did tell one peer, and that peer emailed the counseling center at the high school um, the, the counselor did call the young man in. Uh, he said, oh, I'm not depressed. And the guy said, well, you know, I just thought it was kind of an unusual email. And, and you, you know, you're out there yakking it up with your friends at lunch. I see you over there. Well, I'm glad to hear you're not depressed. Right. Three weeks later, he hung himself. Hmm. So, and this is happening a lot at the new book, what made Maddie run? Um, is about a Penn State student who uh, committed suicide, and she had tried to talk to her parents, and they actually had gotten her help, but she, no one was seeing the extent of her depression because she was so active. Right. And um, it's a great book to pick up and try to establish this idea that you know, there are two criteria. I know you're studying this right now, Robert. Good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two major criteria that psychologists and, and mental health clinicians say have to be met to diagnose depression, and that's depressed mood and anhedonia, which means the lack of pleasure in previously pleasurable things. Right. Those either will not be admitted or will the, the person will not look like that who has PhD. Right. Um, they will look the opposite of that. They may look tired, and they may they may talk to you about worry, but they're you have to you have to ask the right questions. You have to 
not accept that, oh, well, this couldn't be depression because this person's smiling at me. Right. Right. Hmm. Awesome. If you want to connect with Dr. Rutherford, you can find her at drmargaretrutherford.com, facebook.com slash drmargaretrutherford, or on Twitter at dr underscore margaret. You can also find her book on Amazon. There'll be links to all this in the show notes, as well as listen to her podcast, Self Work with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Margaret, tell us a, a quick little bit about your podcast. What, what can people expect if they go to check it out? Oh, sure. Um, I podcast on really diverse topics. I do have uh, five or six episodes on Perfectly Hidden Depression, but I talk about everything from uh, how to how to communicate in relationships better to um, what was my last one on? Um, my last one was on being intimidated and how you can prevent being intimidated, uh, self-compassion, self-acceptance, all that kind of thing. It's called self-work, and it's about – each episode is about 20 minutes long. I also usually, I always include an email from a listener um, because people are writing me a fair amount. And so I will answer questions that people have written to me or emailed to me. And I would like to say that I, my email is confidential and I do my best to answer everyone. It's askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. It's really long. <laughs> Again, askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. If you want to connect with me, you can find me at robert-vore.com or on social media at robertvore. Margaret, do you have any closing words for our listeners today? Well, again, I, I appreciate uh, you asking me so much, Robert, to be on today. I have had ministers as patients, and I always find them, uh, or at least at this point, uh, the people that I have uh, seen have been very curious and and dedicated to the idea of trying to understand mental health issues more. And so I appreciate you doing this program and so that we can better help the people who are struggling with some kind of depression, anxiety, relationship problems, and not just give them the answer, well, you need to pray about it because right. that's just not very helpful. Prayer <laughs> is wonderful, but it's not a, it's, it's, it's not as People tend to shame themselves when you say, just pray about it. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us and telling us all about uh, both of these, you know, seasonal affective disorder and per perfectly hidden depression. I know I learned a lot today, and hopefully listeners did too. Uh, and I uh, hope that you have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Robert. You too. Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.